0: Hello, Health Investor. Welcome back to another episode of the Health Investment Podcast. As you may already know, I do a Q&A style episode every so often. This is the second episode of The Type. To listen to the first, you can scroll through the archives. It was episode 18. Or you can simply visit thehealthinvestment.com slash QA1. I'm always overwhelmed in a great way by the outpouring of questions you send in. For that reason, I'm never able to answer all of your questions in a single episode. But keep them coming because I promise I'll get to all of them eventually. To ask a question, just DM me on Instagram at the Health Investment, or email me, Brooke In today's episode, I'm going to answer the following questions what are some good foods for acid reflux, how much sleep do you aim for, can you explain resistant starch, and if you reheat the rice, does it take away the benefits, and what's the best way to take supplements in terms of with food or without food, in pill, liquid, or powder form, and the time of day. First, I want to share an Apple podcast review with you. TBG33 gave the Health Investment Podcast five stars and wrote, Simple health tips for the win. Brooke makes it easy to understand concrete ways to invest in your health for the long term. With all of the misleading information on social media regarding quote unquote healthy products and fad diets, it's refreshing to listen to a podcast that avoids the popular BS. Keep the great content coming. Thank you so much for that amazing review. I'm glad I'm accomplishing my goal of cutting through all of the health and nutrition BS. If you have enjoyed what you've heard so far, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Visit thehealthinvestment.com slash review to rate the show, and thank you so much in advance for doing so. All right, let's get to your questions. Hi, I'm Brooke Simonson certified nutrition coach and host of the Health Investment Podcast. Here's the thing, you deserve to feel amazing. But here's the other thing, there are so many confusing messages out there. Week after week, I'm gonna share tips and practices that actually work for simple weight loss and sustainable wellness, because I wanna help you get healthy for good, without any BS. When I'm not podcasting, I work with clients one-on-one, So visit the show notes to book your free consultation. And don't forget to leave a review so that others can become trim, energized, confident, BS-busting rock stars like you. Thanks for tuning in. Enjoy the episode. Question number one, what are some foods that are good for acid reflux? This is a great one. So My first thought is actually a question in response to your question, which is, why are you having acid reflux in the first place? As a society, we've been trained to take the Band-Aid approach to different ailments. Since many chronic diseases and symptoms, like acid reflux, are now normal, it can be easy just to accept them as a fact of life. In episode 23, I chatted with Dr. Trevor Cates a.k.a. the spa doctor, about the different messages our skin tries to tell us. I know your question is about acid reflux, not acne, but stay with me here for a second. Dr. Cates explained that she likes to think of the skin as a magic mirror. Rosacea, persistent acne, rashes, and more can all be external signs that something bigger and possibly problematic is happening internally. So instead of just getting a prescription, like Accutane or the birth control pill, to clear up our skin, it's important to dig deep and find the real cause of the issue. That brings me back to acid reflux. The same principle applies. Instead of taking Pepsit or Xantac or some over-the-counter medicine, and instead of trying to eat things to alleviate the symptoms... I think it's always important to dig deep and figure out the cause of the symptoms in the first place. And yes, that may mean avoiding certain foods and eating others. It will probably come down to that. But I guess the point I'm trying to make first and foremost is that you don't have to accept things like acne and acid reflux as just normal. Acid reflux may not be a reality you have to live with forever. Okay, back to the question at hand. Foods to help with acid reflux. According to the National Institute of Diabetes and Digestive and Kidney Diseases, GERD affects about 20% of people in the United States. If left untreated, it can sometimes cause serious complications. Certain conditions can increase a person's chance of developing GERD, including obesity and pregnancy. There are also some lifestyle behaviors that can raise your risk of GERD, like smoking, eating large meals, lying down shortly after eating, eating certain types of foods, such as deep fried or spicy foods, drinking certain types of beverages, like soda, coffee, or alcohol, and using non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, such as aspirin or ibuprofen. Since every person is different, it'd be a great idea for you to keep a food and beverage journal. For a few weeks, track what you eat and drink, and also when you experience symptoms. See if you can make any connections. If you always experience acid reflux 15 to 30 minutes after eating salsa, for example, that'll be a huge clue that salsa is a trigger food for you. I mentioned deep fried and spicy foods, soda, coffee, and alcohol already, But other foods and beverages also cause issues for people. Sometimes GERD can be triggered by chocolate, citrus fruit, pineapple, tomato, onion, garlic, mint, or tea. I've said it before and I'll keep saying it, it's always a good idea to talk to your doctor before making any diet and lifestyle modifications. Your doctor may have other suggestions for you. But also keep in mind the fact that most doctors haven't received formal nutrition training. From the doctors I've interviewed on this podcast and from my doctor friends, I've learned that there are only a few hours of nutrition education in medical school. So if your doctor is quick to recommend medication as the first course of action for your acid reflux, but you'd like to try diet modifications instead, consider visiting another doctor to get a second opinion. Possibly you'll need to go the medication route, but you never know. Cutting out certain trigger foods may just do the trick. Question number two, how much sleep do you aim for? I aim for eight to nine hours of sleep each night. I've always been a huge fan of sleeping since birth. Seriously, ask my mom. She says that I used to put myself down for naps as a toddler. I obviously didn't know the research on sleep when I was very young, but now that I do, I know that I was on to something. Now, you may be thinking, I get six hours of sleep each night and I do just fine. Brooke's crazy needing eight hours. Well, research suggests otherwise. I'm going to read to you, story time, some excerpts from an article in Fast Company. I'll put a link to the full article in the show notes. A sleep deprivation study published in the journal Sleep took 48 adults and restricted their sleep to a maximum of four, six, or eight hours a night for two weeks. One unlucky subset was deprived of sleep for three days straight. As you can imagine, the subjects who were allowed to sleep eight hours per night had the highest performance on average. Subjects who only got four hours a night did worse each day. The group who got six hours of sleep seemed to be holding their own until around day 10 of the study. In the last few days of the experiment, the subjects who were restricted to a maximum of six hours of sleep per night showed cognitive performance that was as bad as the people who weren't allowed to sleep at all. Getting only six hours of shut-eye was as bad as not sleeping for two days straight. The group who got only four hours of sleep each night performed just as poorly, but they hit their low sooner. One of the most alarming results from the sleep study is that the six-hour sleep group didn't rate their sleepiness as being all that bad, even as their cognitive performance was going downhill. The no-sleep group progressively rated their sleepiness level higher and higher. By the end of the experiment, their sleepiness had jumped by two levels but the six-hour group only jumped one level. Those findings raise the question about how people cope when they get insufficient sleep, perhaps suggesting that they're in denial, willful or otherwise, about their present state. Pretty crazy, right? Another study found that sleep restriction was associated with an increase in caloric consumption. In fact, calorie intake in the sleep restricted group increased by a whopping 550 calories per day. Over a week's time, that could add up to about a pound of weight gain. Aside from weight gain, insufficient sleep can lead to low energy, brain fog, higher risk for chronic illnesses, depressed mood, suppressed immune function, inflammation, and more. So I hope you're getting my point here. Sleep is super important. Again, I aim for eight hours minimum each night, but I personally feel even better when I get nine. If you're getting hopefully eight, maybe seven, possibly that works for you. Ask yourself, should I be making sleep more of a priority in my life? And if the answer is yes, but you don't know how to make that happen, feel free to message me on Instagram, at the Health Investment. And we can chat about ways to boost both your quantity and quality of sleep. Question number three. Can you explain resistant starch? And if you reheat the rice, does it take away the benefits? I love this question. If you've never heard of it before, get excited because resistant starch is super cool. In simple terms, resistant starch is a type of starch that resists digestion. It can have powerful health benefits like improving the body's sensitivity to insulin. The importance of insulin sensitivity truly cannot be stressed enough. Having low insulin sensitivity, aka insulin resistance, is believed to be a major risk factor for several serious diseases, including metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes, obesity, heart disease, and Alzheimer's. To explain how resistant starches work, I'll turn to excerpts from a Healthline.com article. The main reason why resistant starch works is that it functions like a soluble, fermentable fiber. It goes through your stomach and small intestine, undigested, eventually reaching your colon where it feeds your friendly gut bacteria. The bacteria in your intestine, the gut flora, outnumber the body's cells 10 to 1. In that respect, you're only 10% human. Whereas most foods feed only 10% of your cells, fermentable fibers and resistant starches feed the other 90%. There are hundreds of different species of bacteria in your intestine. In the past few decades, scientists have discovered that the number and type of bacteria can have a profound impact on your health. Resistant starch feeds the friendly bacteria, having a positive effect on the type of bacteria as well as their number. I'm going to stop there, but if you want to read the full article, I'll put a link in the show notes. Now, you're probably asking which foods are high in resistant starch. So they are cooked oats, but if you cook and then cool the oats, likely that will give you higher resistant starch. Cooked and then cooled rice, cooked and then cooled potatoes, beans and legumes, raw potatoes, and green bananas. So you'll notice a lot of that was very specific the cooked and then cooled part and the green bananas. So eating a regular banana won't have as much resistant starch as eating one that is not yet fully ripe. Okay, so that was the resistant starch crash course. Now, back to your question. If you cook, cool, then reheat the starch, does it take away the benefits? Fortunately, researchers studied this. They measured the resistant starch in cooked rice, cooked and cooled rice, and cooked, cooled, and reheated rice. The cooked rice was lowest in resistant starch, but both the cooked and cooled and then the cooked, cooled, reheated rice had about the same levels of resistant starch. In fact, the cooked, cooled, reheated batch had slightly more resistant starch than the rice that wasn't reheated. So if resistant starch is what you're after, feel free to reheat cooked rice and potatoes after they've been refrigerated. Real quick, I want to take a break from the episode to share one of my favorite resources with you. One of the BS messages floating around out there is that eating healthy costs too much. Honestly, I used to believe this myself. That is until I discovered thrivemarket.com. Thrive Market is an online grocery platform that's essentially Costco meets Trader Joe's meets Whole Foods. I love that I can shop on their mobile app and have all of my favorite groceries, everything from natural wine to 100% grass-fed beef to nutritious crackers, everything, delivered right to my door. Last year, I saved over $1,000 shopping on Thrive. I honestly can't think of one reason not to love it. To save a percentage off your first order and see my full shopping list, click through the links in the show notes. Now, back to the episode. And now, the final question question number four. What's the best way to take supplements? Food or no food, pill, liquid powder form, what time of day, etc.? This is a tough one, and my answer is really, it depends. Some vitamins are fat soluble, which means they're best taken with a meal that contains saturated fats or oils to help you absorb them. Common fat soluble vitamins are A, D, E, K, CoQ10, curcumin from turmeric, and fish oil. Water-soluble vitamins absorb best on an empty stomach. That means they're best taken first thing in the morning, 30 minutes prior to eating, or two hours after a meal. Vitamin C, all B vitamins, and folic acid are water-soluble. Where it gets tricky is with a prenatal or multivitamin, since both are composed of fat-soluble and water-soluble vitamins. So it's really best to check the packaging to see what's recommended. Different brands have different recommendations. If the packaging advises that you take the vitamin on an empty stomach, you'll probably want to take those vitamins right when you wake up. If you're supposed to take them with a meal, you'll probably want to wait until breakfast, lunch, or dinner. When it comes to taking vitamins in pill, liquid, or powder form, from what I understand, it's kind of up to personal preference. Obviously, liquid vitamins may be easier for children, but most adults prefer tablets. One thing I like to be cognizant of when buying vitamins is whether or not they have added fillers. As with everything, not all vitamins are created equal. Some are filled with a lot of crappy ingredients. So in the same way that you read ingredients labels on packaged foods, you've got to read the ingredients on your vitamins. Which crappy ingredients should you be on the lookout for when buying vitamins? The answer to that question lies in episodes 10 and 11. In those episodes, I chatted with the co-founder of my favorite supplement company, Pure Vitamin Club. Pure Vitamin Club's mission is to make the cleanest vitamins at affordable prices. So to learn more about the company and to learn what to avoid in common brands, scroll through my episode archives and find my discussion with the co-founder, Andy Schreiber. He shared so much valuable information that I ended up splitting our conversation into two episodes. So I can't even summarize it here. You've just got to listen yourself. As I said, you can hear what he has to say in episodes 10 and 11, or you can visit the healthinvestment.com slash pure vitamin club one and the healthinvestment.com slash pure vitamin club two. A final note on this question, always keep in mind that the best way to get vitamins and nutrients is from whole foods. The more whole foods you incorporate into your diet, the better chance you'll have at getting. All of the nutrients your body needs. Supplementation may be necessary at times, like in the case of a prenatal vitamin, but you should always think of supplements as boosters to your already healthy diet. You shouldn't think of them as some magic pills that can give you every nutrient you need because, again, the way your body absorbs vitamins from different supplements is nuanced. And you don't really even know how much you're absorbing from supplements, even if you take them at the appropriate times of day. So really add as many whole foods in the form of produce and clean animal protein and healthy fats, as many nutrients as you can into your diet. All right, that wraps up our second Q&A episode. Remember, you can always reach out to me with your nutrition and health questions via email, brooke@healthinvestment.com or on Instagram, at The Health Investment. I look forward to answering your questions in a future episode. Well, that's all for today. Before the next episode drops, I'd love to chat with you one-on-one about the BS messages and methods currently holding you back. You deserve simple weight loss and sustainable wellness. So let's figure out how to make both happen. To book your free consultation, click through the link in the show notes. Again, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Health Investment Podcast. See you next week. All content in this podcast was created for general informational purposes only by a non-physician. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis.